We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hamilton Today here in Hamilton, Ontario. Welcome to the show. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. Just switch the Scots to make it easy for everyone to remember. Thanks for being with us. Really glad that you are along for happy hour. However, however you choose to apply happy hour, uh, that is your choice. Although today is National Vodka Day. So, I mean, I don't know if 308 on a Tuesday is, you know, appropriate time to be celebrating too earnestly, but you know, each to their own. It's also National Cinnamon Bun Day. Maybe that's safer. Maybe get a cinnamon bun at this time of day and save the rest for later. Uh, glad you're along. We have so much to get to today. Including, by the way, let me just plug our Twitter poll before we get rolling into everything else. Should election candidates be allowed to send eligible voters a text asking for their support? This has been a thing that's happened here in town. Should that be allowed? Nine, uh, not 905. Don't call in with that one. Go to Twitter. I'll get it. Go to Twitter. Look for 900CHML and cast your vote. Should election candidates be allowed to send eligible voters a text asking for their support? Let me tell you what is coming up today, though. We are going to be chatting about a really interesting election topic that I, I didn't even realize, honestly, was a topic until recently. But there are those who are pushing, saying that we need to open the doors of voting to non-citizens of the country. That people should be able, if they're not a citizen of Canada, some are saying they should be able to vote, particularly in a municipal election. What do you think about that idea? Gas prices. Um, we talk about gas prices often because this is something that drives people goofy with the ups and downs, especially the ups. Well, we're going to see more of those coming. Apparently we're waiting for a surge in gas prices again. A bunch of hikes are coming. Why are they coming? We'll hear about that one as the show goes on. Stock market. Now, if you're upset about gas prices going up, maybe you're not so upset about the stock market shooting up big increases in the stock market today. What happened today that would suddenly make the stock market have a big rebound and a big push because it's been nudging down and down and down for the most part. What is the news, if anything, that caused this, or is this just a Tuesday morning speculation of something that, uh, that made this happen? We will, we'll get into that one. There are protests going on. Do you hear about the protests in Iran? I'm sure you have over the last number of days. It all stems back to a young woman who, um, well, depending on who you believe, either was taken into police custody, 22 year old woman, either was taken into police custody and just spontaneously had a fatal heart attack or was beaten to death by police. Anyway, these protests are now spreading and the regime in Iran is beginning to crack down on this. Um, it's kind of the, well, it's, I don't, it's not, I, it's not the, um, the, the same protest that we had a number of years ago with the Arab spring, People are back in the streets and, you know, when they go out in the streets in some of these countries like Iran, it, this is, you are risking your health and well-being. obviously. It is something that I don't think people there would do lightly. Why are they doing this? What are they hoping will happen? Uh, crazy story. I thought it was a crazy story. We'll, we'll be talking about this one. The, we don't usually around here follow the Asian winter games too closely. I I'm quite confident that nobody listening probably could tell us who did well in the last Asian winter games, but we're going to talk about the Asian winter games. Why? Because the Asian winter games have been awarded to in 2029 have been awarded to 
Saudi Arabia. Yes, that that hotbed or cold bed for winter sports. Saudi Arabia will be hosting the skiing and bobsleighing and luging and all the rest, I guess, of all the Asian winter games. And how you say, well, stick around. We'll talk about that one and whether this is really a good idea or not. Uh, the city of Hamilton has a new bit of technology to help you find stuff about your city. We'll talk about that. Hockey Canada, of course, more stuff swirling around the board of Hockey Canada and things going on there. And Loretta Lynn, country music star, has passed away. Uh, Loretta Lynn no longer with us today. We'll chat a little bit about Loretta Lynn. Now, Loretta Lynn is, you know, obviously a name that everybody knows, I think. I don't know if everyone knows the story or everyone knows her place in country music. I mean, if you're a country fan, sure, but she she's a big deal even for those who I guess aren't really big into the whole country music thing. But yes, uh, Loretta Lynn has now passed away, so that uh, that will be something we get to later. I am trusting that most of you know that 20 days from now we will have a municipal election. It's not a long time away; less than we're less than three weeks from the polls. Uh, not sure. I wrote something today. Not sure there is a huge buzz in the city yet about this election. It doesn't seem to capture the same excitement. But there are some people within the city who say they would like to vote, but they can't vote. Those would be people who are not citizens of the country. Uh, our laws do not provide for non-citizens to cast a ballot. There have been questions raised about this in other places as well as around here. Is this something that we should continue with this policy or is this something that should change? I want to bring in Peter Grafe. He is an associate professor in the Faculty of Political Science at McMaster University. He's a very familiar voice here on the station. We always appreciate his time. Thank you for doing this. Do we have Peter? Hello? Yeah, I'm here. My pleasure. There we go. There we go. Hey, technology is wonderful when it works. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. I'm pleased to be here. What um, What is your thought on, on this idea? Because it's a, obviously a contentious issue when you talk about who should be able to vote or not able to vote. Where do you stand on this? Well, I mean, I think it's a question of deciding both at federal and provincial and, and local elections, uh, you know, what's the nature of the electorate? I mean, we're used to thinking of voting being tied to citizenship, and that's a basis on which, you know, a lot of people are excluded from voting. So people who are permanent residents or here as students or as temporary workers uh, don't have a right to vote uh, as a result of that. Um, uh, you, we've seen, I think, in the United States, uh, push in some cities to say, well, there's a lot of people ultimately then who aren't able to vote, yet who are really affected by what's happening, you know, especially by municipal issues, things like transit, things, you know, tied to... Uh, you know, to housing, to the livability of, of the locality, and that, you know, instead of citizenship as a basis for voting, it should be based on, on uh, you know, being present in the space, right, of inhabiting that place. So, you know, that's been the, the, the kind of push, I think, for non-citizen voting in those places. But, you know, generally speaking, uh, I don't think many political actors have the courage to try that out uh, because they realize that it's quite possible to run a backlash against that uh, with uh, parties uh, really pushing the idea that really voting should remain something that's that's tied to citizenship. Well, and, and one of the words you used, I think, is very relevant to this discussion. Um, and I'm I'm coming at it because, I, I mean, I do believe in citizenship to vote, so I, I don't mind saying that up front. But the idea of temporary, because that I think is one of the one of the real challenges, is that there is a commitment involved, presumably, in being a citizen. 
that you are going to be here for the long haul or probably. Now, no one's guaranteeing that, but probably, whereas, as you say, if you're a student, you might be here for a year or two and then gone. And is it appropriate or is it right for that person to dictate or to help dictate policies for the long term? What do you think? What, what do we say to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, you know, that the argument you're making there is really that, yeah, if people aren't here in the long run, then we can't really trust them to, to have the attachment to the place. Um, you know, and might make decisions that were really costly for people or, you know, contribute to decisions being taken that were really costly for people who would be around in the long run, uh, you know, to, to bear uh, to bear the price of that. You know, I guess the, you know, the alternative way of looking at it is to say, well, who on an ongoing basis is paying for you know, these decisions being made? And we don't know who's going to be here in the future, but we know who's paying taxes, you know, whether it's through their rent or through their property taxes, you know, at the municipal level. Um uh, in the here and now. And so why not uh, ultimately, you know, tie that back to the fact of people being here and who are being uh, affected directly. And so, uh, you know, I guess at the level of the municipal franchise, some people might say, you know, how is it that uh, people who don't actually live in Hamilton, but own land in Hamilton and their spouses have a right to vote, whereas people who are actually living here day to day and are probably affected, you know, much by a much broader range of decisions being made by council, not just the property taxes, but things like, you know, how well the city is kept up and whether the streets are reserviced or whether the, the buses run are excluded. So I think that's probably why you've seen the push, especially at the municipal level, to say, well, maybe inhabitants really should matter uh, more. Uh, perhaps at the federal and provincial levels, questions of citizenship begin to play a bigger role because it's also involving, you know, questions of war and peace and so on that maybe have particular impacts on people's, uh, you know, citizenship might have a particular uh, relevance at that at that level. Well, and, and there are distinctions here. I mean, when people are talking about this, th there's a distinction I think that some people are making between should you have the right to vote federally or provincially if you are not a citizen or municipally. There, there are those who say municipal is a different animal. I don't, because of those things, war or because of government, like, I don't, I don't know all the reasons, but that, that has, you know, that has been a distinction some have made. It, should there be, or should, if you, if we're going to go with one, should it go for all, or should we be doing different things for different levels of government potentially? Well, at the moment we do do slightly different things and I'm not sure about the reasons for all of them, but you know, for instance, uh, people who are incarcerated don't have a right to vote municipally, uh, whereas they can federally and provincially. Um, some of that may have to do with the, the complications administratively of doing that, or perhaps concerns uh, about, you know, all if all the votes were counted, just say, in Ward 2 out of the Barton Jail, would that have an undue influence on, on the, the ward results there? And again, I'm not exactly sure what the, the logic is there. Uh, similarly, as I mentioned earlier, people who hold property, uh, you know, say someone living in Burlington who hold, has, uh, you know, a house that he rents out or she rents out in Hamilton, uh, has a right to vote in both Burlington and Hamilton. And so in, in a municipal election, which is something they can't do provincially or federally. And again, in that case, it probably relates to the fact that being a property taxpayer is seen as qualifying them. So, you know, in that instance, it's not simply, you know, citizenship, but property also, uh, you know, has a, uh, gains one an extra right to franchise. So we do do things a bit differently municipally, probably reflecting the fact that municipal government is seen as providing services to property that non-resident property holders, you know, have, have held that right historically. Um, so yeah, I think we do come up with different uh, stories at different levels of government because we see them doing different things. Is the, is the ultimate thing 
paying taxes. I mean, and I, I don't mean paying like going to the store and buying a chocolate bar and paying the tax on that. I mean, like paying property tax or paying tax on your rent or something. Is that ultimately how we delineate this or is, and again, cause I, I don't think that even the people, Peter, who would say I'm in favor of non-citizens voting necessarily would say, Hey, the, the day you arrive on our shores, we want to give you a ballot. I think even the people who are very much in favor of this would want some sort of connection to the city. So how, what, what maybe should that connection be or where do we draw that line or is that an easy answer? Well, I mean, I think if you live in uh, live in a city, you're more or less paying taxes in some way or the other. I mean, uh, you know, you do say, you know, maybe buying a chocolate bar, the, the GST isn't that much. But if you're paying rent in the city, you know, part of the price of your rent is your landlord uh, figuring on the price of the property taxes. And as those okay. property taxes go up, so does the rent. So, you know, the, there's, there's that aspect. But I, I think you're right that people probably would think about ways of drawing lines. And, you know, certainly the idea of, say, permanent residency, uh, you know, is one where people have, you know, indicated a, a willingness to be residents permanently and presumably be taking a step towards citizenship. And that would be a pretty big category of citizens that might be included, who nevertheless, you know, would have shown a, a longer term connection uh, with the city um, and are presumably living here and, and paying property taxes. Fascinating topic. Peter Gray from McMaster. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for this. You're welcome. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I mean, of all the things that we look forward to in this world, one of them that gets us so excited is driving by the pumps and seeing those numbers just keep going up and up and up. Uh, Not really. But uh, it would help if you did enjoy that because it seems that uh, that's where things are going and that would make you a lot happier than those of us who don't enjoy paying higher taxes or higher fuel prices. Well, let me bring in Dan McTague, who, um, you know, some days I always want to bring Dan on here because I want him to be the bluebird of happiness, but he's always the grim reaper, it seems, always talking about higher fuel taxes. Dan, I don't know how you ended up being this guy who always has to bring in the bad news, but boy, it does seem like we hear a lot of it these days. It is, but I think we tend to forget, uh, Scott, 20, 25 years ago, people had no way of knowing. And uh, right. until I pioneered the ability to figure out how these folks price, uh, glad to see there's other people uh, have kind of come on lately and are so-called experts, but that's okay, uh, more the merrier. Up until then, uh, the public really had no control over what was going on. Now you do. Uh, and whether it's going up or down, it's significant, you're going to find out uh, a couple of days in advance. So, look, uh, it's not fun. <laughs> it's uh, never pleasant to tell people what's going to happen. But at least they have a day or two to make that choice. And uh, over the years, I'm sure they've probably saved, you know, dozens, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of dollars. Uh, Dan, by the way, I didn't introduce you properly. President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Um, So we have now the uh, apparently one of the highest single day increases coming up around here um, overnight. Why? Well, yes, it would be one of the highest. I can't remember a time where it went up 10 cents or more a liter. That would, you have to go back to 2008, September, Hurricane Ike, I think it was the, or Ida. I think it's Ida that uh, created the problem way back then on the Texas Gulf Coast. Uh, it has to do with OPEC, and it has to do with refiners here in Ontario potentially asking for a little bit more money. But most importantly, uh, oil has gone up about $8 a barrel from 78 uh, up to about 86 bucks a barrel. Uh, it's OPEC's way of saying, you know, uh, assuming, of course, tomorrow they formalize a production cut of about a million barrels or more a day, 
uh, it means that uh, they want the markets to become a little bit more uh, centered on fundamentals, supply and demand, rather than uh, you know the uh, the kind of odd, bizarre takes of you know obsession with recessions, demand destruction, uh, you know uh, lockdowns uh, in China. All these are important, but they do not underscore, or nor do they address the fact that oil uh, continues to lag behind. Uh, that is, oil supply globally lags behind uh, demand, and so. I think OPEC saying uh, it's our, not in our interest to help North America, to help Europe. It's our interest to look after our clients. We believe the valuation of this uh, product uh, should be a lot more, and they want 100 bucks a barrel, not 70 not 75 So where is it going from here then? So we're, we're basically looking at um, about $1.62, $1.63, we think, overnight. I know that in our newscast, we've been hearing your voice talking about how once December 31st rolls around and the uh, provincial tax cut evaporates, that's another, what, 10 cents, 8 cents, 9 cents. Um, Where are we going to get to with this? Yeah, I think we're going up, and it's probably because we shouldn't have fallen as far as we did. Um, Again, when you associate and correlate fundamentals, um, that supply and demand matrix, Economics 101, seems to have been set aside for headline news and uh, a lot of the paper traders financial people involved with taking you know a sort of a cursory look at what's happening uh don't really aren't involved with moving and distributing and shipping and processing oil gasoline diesel uh, and other such products if they were they would be somewhat perplexed by the fact that oil's trading as low as it is and gasoline and diesel etc so i think what you're seeing now is a, a correction uh, and it's a fairly serious one um which I think will mean, you know, between next now now and the next uh, month or so, we should see prices move up an average of an additional $0.10 cents a litre. Some of that, by the way, Scott, could happen as early as Thursday, where unless something dramatic should happen, I think we're looking at another 4 or $0.05 cent increase on Thursday. So uh, best to hit a gas station today. Uh, one way or another, you're going to get a 10 to $0.15 cent increase wholesale right across the board. And, you know, some gas stations will be cheaper than others. That's understandable because they have control over the last $0.08 cents a litre. But... Uh, my predictions are wholesale price predictions. They're not, you know, what the retailer is, is thinking in their mind and how they're able to subsidize, uh, you know, making it cheaper than other stations. At the end of the day, um, these are market prices that are moving up, and they have been moving up uh, pretty much across all of North America. Uh, unfortunately, that means uh, we have to pay the freight. And worse, a weaker Canadian dollar. The Canadian dollar, you know, yeah. used to be the petrodollar when we had $80, $90 barrel oil. No longer, and uh, you were paying an additional thirty-five, forty cents a liter as a result. I saw something else, and we got to run here. But I saw something else the other day that said, and I, I, th- I thought this has to be a typo that somewhere in Vancouver recently gas prices hit two forty-one point nine a liter. Is that correct? Yeah. So I predicted that a few days before, and uh, your sister station there, CKNW, uh, ran the story, and uh, unfortunately, it's true, and it did happen. But uh, it's coming. Are we expecting bit- that to move east? No. No, that's a look. They pay higher taxes. They have a clean fuel standard, by the way, which is 16, 17 cents a liter in Vancouver. That's what the Trudeau government will be imposing on us very soon. So, in the next couple of years, we're going to see a very similar tax uh, here in Ontario. So, it'll be a second carbon tax. Uh, you know, I hear a lot of people complaining and belly aching about uh, why prices are going up, but uh, you keep voting for the folks that keep putting this kind of stuff in. You got to expect that uh, something's going to have to give. Dan McTague, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. I always appreciate your time. Thank you for doing this today. Oh, thanks so much, Todd. You have a good day. 241.9 a litre. Uh, that would be um, 
some of us would have heart attacks if we drove by and saw that. Let's pray that doesn't arrive here anytime soon. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The stock markets have been a source of angst, I think is a good word, for many people who invest, who have investments, retirement funds or mutual funds, RSPs, whatever. Uh, It's been a source of angst for a while now. It's been not a very happy year so far for a lot of people who have investments and are looking to retire and maybe have a little nest egg. Well, here I am today as the bearer of good news. We were just talking last hour about the gas prices going up and being the bearer of bad news. TSX today up 489 points. Dow Jones up 825 points. Yesterday was pretty good too. What is going on that all of a sudden the world is spinning and we're back looking happy again? Those people who have a little money stashed away. Uh, Brett Chang, co-host of the Peak Daily, joins you now. Brett, how are you? I'm good. Great to be with you, Scott. You as well. So look, I, I don't pretend, and I think a lot of people listening don't really pretend to understand everything that's going on. We just, every once in a while, check our investments and hope that they've grown. Lately, they haven't. What's going on today and yesterday that suddenly we're feeling good again? Well, there's a couple of big numbers that came out of the U.S. So investors cheered a fresh labor market reading that showed U.S. job openings. They slid by the most in nearly two and a half years in August, which is a welcome sign. It means that uh, labor demand is a fight over reserve officials who are trying to tamp down outsized labor demand in the fight against inflation, that it's actually working. And so that's the, the real big news that came out of the U.S. that investors are now excited about. So it looks like uh, what the Federal Reserve is doing is, is working. So I'm reading this story on Reuters today that explains or tries to explain this. And here's the, the sentence, data manufacturing activity increased at its slowest pace in nearly two and a half years, which is what you just said in September, as new orders contracted. All right. So that, that doesn't sound good. And then they've got a quote here from some analyst who says, the economic data stream actually came in worse than expected. Um, this has been a catalyst for selling. This is the first time we've actually seen negative news be a catalyst. It, it, it seems very antithetical to say bad economic news might be a reason for good economic news. How does this work? Well, one of the really interesting things about the economic circumstances that we're dealing with right now is that while we're seeing the markets go down and people are wondering whether or not we're in a recession, the labor market is actually very strong, that there are more jobs than there are workers. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of economists have said that we're not in a recession. They wouldn't define as what we're going through right now as a recession. So what's happening is basically you're seeing that labor market start to level out. You're seeing now that the amount of jobs available and the amount of workers that are actually in the market working, that that's becoming more balanced, which is ultimately what you want. You want to have a balanced labor market, and that ultimately will kind of propel you through any type of negative economic conditions. This stuff does, though, and you probably acknowledge this, because, I mean, you're, you're great at understanding all this and explaining it, but for an awful lot of people who are sort of on the periphery watching, they're scratching their head going, I'm not really sure I understand what the heck is happening right now and why my money is going up or down. Yeah, well, look, these are very complicated times. There's a lot happening in the world, you know, whether it's the war going on in Ukraine or whether it's inflation that we're tackling here at home or the UK mini budget. These are really complicated economic times. And with so much going on, one little stat from one agency in the U.S., it could change everything. And so it's hard to follow I think you can't look day to day at what's going on right now. And you really have to take 
a larger view of things. And I, I think the really big indicators are not going to be these labor numbers, but it's really going to be the consumer price index. It's going to be, is inflation going up or down? The reports coming out of the central banks and ultimately what interest rates are being set by the Reserve, by the Bank of Canada. Those are really the key indicators I think investors should be looking at. I think you just nailed something, though. If, if you are not planning to retire in the next, I don't know, what's the time frame? Five years that is long enough out? You're probably best for your mental and emotional health to not even open those envelopes when they come telling you what your investments are. Just ride it out for a while and pretend it doesn't exist because it may make you go crazy. Yeah, that's great advice, Scott. I, I, I would absolutely do that. I, it's my job to look at the numbers every day. And so I, I have to be up to date with what's going on. But it can be a real toll on your mental health if you're looking at your investments and seeing them go down. But ultimately, you have to hope that over a certain horizon, I think that five-year period is a good one, as you uh, alluded to, that five-year horizon is a good way to look at it, which is things will always balance out. There'll be good times, there'll be bad times, there'll be boom bear markets, bull markets, and you just have to trust that over time, your dollars invested will appreciate. And that's really all you can do. This is really out of our control. I think playing the markets, looking day-to-day at what data is coming out, I think that's a, uh, unless you're a real professional, that's, it's challenging to beat the market. I'm, tr- I'm trying to understand though, because it seems to me, and you tell me if you get a different perspective on this one, because I'd love to hear it. But it seems to me that when the markets are going great, people who are involved in are saying, oh yeah, I know they're going great, but they can't go like this forever. They're going to go down. And when they're going down, we don't say, oh, well, they're going down. They got to get better soon. They go, oh, they're going down. It's going to crash. We seem to have this constantly negative position on what's going to happen. Nothing good is ever going to happen. It's only ever going to go down. No, it doesn't. And we still invest in it, but I don't know. I don't understand. I don't quite get the negative thing, but I hear that all the time from people. Yeah, it it really does go both ways. There is a constant negativity and at least concern. I think it's because there's a thing called loss aversion where it hurts more to lose money than it feels good to win money or gain money. And so the natural inclination that we have as human beings is simply to avoid that loss at all costs. And so you're always kind of paranoid about what's going to happen because you want to avoid the feeling of losing losing your hard-earned dollars. So I think that's probably really where it, it derives from and it's, but really, it's it's neither. It's it's that over a long enough horizon, we've seen time and time again that your dollars invested will likely appreciate if you put them into index funds or things that track the the complete market. Just before we let you go, uh, so tomorrow, are we expecting more of the same? If you are one of those people who has to peek through your fingers at least at the numbers, is tomorrow expected to be another safe day to do that, or will we? Where what do we think is going to happen? Well, Scott, you're putting me on the spot here. I, I'm not a professional investor myself, and so my guess is as good as yours. You know, what I would say is that uh, the, what's going on in the world right now is very complicated, and there's a number of different factors at play in terms of how the markets do on any given day. And so you could get bad news coming out of Ukraine or get another pipeline explosion, or you could get you know reports about inflation from a central bank. And that can only make situations worse. And so it's a bit like we're in a, a we're in a, a really, really challenging situation right now, and it's going to be difficult to predict. So I, my guess is as good as yours. All right. I, I was hoping. I was hoping that Brett Chang was going to set us all up for millionairehood by tomorrow morning, but um, I guess that'll have to wait. Uh, Brett Chang, co-host of The Peak Daily, we always do appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. 
Thanks so much, guys. Well, I, I hope that many people, most people listening, are paying attention to world events, not just things here within our borders, because there is there are protests going on right now in Iran for a really good reason, it seems. Um, there was a young woman, a 22-year-old woman, who uh, a few weeks ago was taken into police custody and died. And the one, the official explanation is that she just had a spontaneous fatal heart attack the other explanation that many people are saying is that she was beaten to death. This was all because she did not have her hair apparently covered fully with a hijab or a headscarf. And now these protests in Iran are breaking out, which is causing the ruling party there to be, well, they're not too happy about this. Um, Mohammed Tavakoli is a professor of history and Near and Middle Eastern civilizations at the University of Toronto who joins us now. Professor, thank you for the time today. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your program. Do you have any doubt of which side you believe of what happened to this young woman? Well, definitely the moral police is responsible for the death of Masa Amini, uh, who died on September 16th. And uh, women who have uh, poured onto the streets of Tehran and all cities in Iran are collectively saying that we are not going to take it anymore, the song that you had in the beginning of this program. Right. And and it, I'm maybe I shouldn't be surprised that they are protesting only because of the risk to themselves. There, there is still great risk to themselves to be out there on the streets. Definitely there is a great risk, but Iranian women who have been in the forefront of the revolution in 1979 and in forefront of the revolution in 1905 are challenging the moral and ethical foundation of this patriarchal theocratic regime in Iran and are calling for women's choice. Women's choice is becoming the central issue in a movement with the slogan of Women, life, liberty. This is a rejection of patriarchy, rejection of imp male imposed choices on women and is national wide. And we have seen in the demonstration that it includes elementary school and high school girls. And this is a daily plebiscite against the Islamic Republic and its patriarchal political order. Do you hold out, though, much hope of change? And the, the only reason I ask is in many places, widespread protests would lead to change because the leaders would say, well, you know, this is what the people want, except when you're, the leadership here operates, they believe, for a religious and philosophical view that, that it's not a publicity contest. It's because they're following a doctrine. Do, do you see the likelihood that this changes anything? This changes because Iranian women have agency, consciousness, and they have reached a point that they are taking it into the street, negating the, this particular political order that has been in power in Iran since uh, 1979. I think there is no going back. Yes, they may uh, crush the movement, in the main street and main square, but is going to pop up in the back street and the back alleys. And again, what is really amazing is how women have come 
to shape the future of Iran and I would say uh, the future of the region in general and calling for an end to regimes that impose patriarchy in the name of religious mm. orthodoxy. And, you know, you, you alluded to it earlier about the, the different times that women have risen up. It is always amazing to me when we see old photos or old video of Iran from years ago and see it looking, I dare say, almost very Western, the way women were dressed and th th there were no hijabs or not as many, or you didn't have to. There was a time when what we're talking about was very much the norm in Iran. Uh, it was the norm, but what is really significant now is that women will be the senior partners for any future political change that takes place. They are not going to be marginalized as they have been the, they have been done to in the previous movements. As senior partners, they are shaping a future that has global implication. That is end of male dominant political order and women's choice at that the heart of this political movement that is the architecture of it, architect of which are women and girls in the streets, in the back alleys, in elementary schools and in high schools. And because they are the engine of this movement, they are not gonna be pushed back or marginalized and have a male dominant political order taking charge. I think this calls for a wholesale reshaping of not only the regime, but also various Iranian political opposition movements that are dominated by men and male political agendas. There is one more very interesting way that this is being dealt with by the regime, and that is uh, probably not surprisingly, this is not, according to the regime, the fault of the police for killing this young woman. This is not the fault of the regime. Uh, this is the fault of the United States and Israel. They are the cause of all these problems. So everything needs to be done to the U.S. and Israel. Not at all surprising, but is that landing on any kind of receptive ears there? It or are not. people even there saying, come on, it's not there? It is not. It is not. Because the women who are marching onto the streets and risking their lives, they are signaling the ethical and moral bankruptcy of the regime. All Iranian women have experienced this through their everyday life and the imposed will that has been for long the emblem of the Islamic regime. This is not something that could be dictated by Israel, United States, or Saudi Arabia. This is a movement that has grown out of political involvement of Iranian women in the past hundred years, and it has a global implication. It shapes a political horizon, a future that woman's choice would be at the heart of it. So in a sense, unlike the political revolutions of the 18th and 19th century where there was fraternity, brotherhood, men are e created equally, this movement with women, life and liberty promises a different 
constellation of political forces in the future. I'm Fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating story and one that I hope everyone keeps their eyes on because it's a, it's a very important story as well. Uh, Mohamed Tavakoli from the University of Toronto, very much appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. When you think of the Middle East, for me anyway, the first thing I think of when I think of the Middle East is not protests or anything like that. It's winter sports, bobsleigh and skiing and skating and luge. I mean, who wouldn't obviously think of that kind of thing in Saudi Arabia? Well, Saudi Arabia has been awarded the 2029 Asian Winter Games. Uh huh. Now, we don't pay any attention to the Asian Winter Games, I grant you. But the idea that Saudi Arabia is now hosting winter sports is a puzzler. Now, the, the explanation is they're building this $500 billion indoor project. It's like a whole indoor city. And they're saying it's going to have ski hills and it's going to have all these other things. So I guess, well, I know they can't do luge or something outside. Everything is going to be indoor. This is going to be the indoor winter games. Still, winter games in Saudi Arabia just don't seem to go in the same sentence together. Michael Narain is Associate Professor of Sport Management at Brock University joins us now. Michael, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate it. All right. Anytime, Scott. It's a pleasure to be on. By the way, I should say Dr. Michael Narain. Let's give credit where credit <laughs> is due. we got to give the right uh, the right plug here. Um, okay. Before we get into why Saudi Arabia may want to do this, and I know there's a lot of reasons why they might, the people who put these games together, why in the world would you even entertain the idea of putting it somewhere where the temperature commonly hits like 38, 39 degrees Celsius? Yeah, it's a fair question, and, and, and part of the reason why is because you're trying to expand the, the catchment area for sport participation. So when we think about winter sports, I mean, obviously, you know, we're a winter sport country. Scandinavia is a winter sport country. There are some in Asia as well that, that have not only snow, but have a decent you know, participation rate when it comes to certain winter sports. But when you're trying to grow, uh, I'll use the term grow the game, um, but when you're trying to grow multiple sport disciplines, when you're talking about skiing, when you talk about luge, um, those aren't traditional sports in that continent, to be honest. No. And so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, so when you have an opportunity to build some infrastructure to put on a games, you know, the research that I've done alongside some colleagues at the University of Waterloo has shown uh, what's called the demonstration effect that if you do build it, they will eventually come. And you know, all, all that you know, we can just look here domestically very quickly. Um, 2010 Vancouver Olympic Games. I mean, just look at all of the Olympians or certainly the elite athletes in our sports system who stem from watching or on TV or in person the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver. And I guess, you know, if we really want to, we could point to the example of the Jamaican bobsled team from Once Upon a Time, although slightly different story that was brought to them by somebody who said, hey, you'd be great at this. I'll, I'll, I'll hold my fire here and say I, I'm not putting down a wager that we're seeing a Saudi Arabian luge team in any Olympics anytime soon, even after this. But you know what? Who knows? Maybe. All right. But that's that's part of it. That's OK. So that's why you might want to do it. But Saudi Arabia clearly has been, I was going to say dipping its toe, more than dipping its toe into the world of big time sports lately. They've got the Live Golf Tour that they are sponsoring, hundreds of millions of dollars. They've got other things. Why Saudi Arabia? Why are they all of a sudden so interested in sports? Yeah, so it's a great question, Scott. And again, I would agree with you. Less, less inclined to suspect the Saudi Arabian's uh, winter Olympic program is going to start winning gold medals. 
you know, in the next few years, 2030 in Salt Lake or Vancouver, whatever it should be. But yeah, the main reason is because the Saudi Arabian uh, royal family have now figured out that, you know, using the capital that they've uh, accrued through oil and through other development um, is better served, not just in investment in you know, the stock market and and investment in, you know, certain uh, industries, but specifically the sport industry, because sport is a very powerful geopolitical vehicle. We've seen sport being used by Russia through Vladimir Putin in for the Sochi Winter Olympic Games for the FIFA World Cup. We've seen Beijing and the Chinese government do the same thing for two Olympic Games. Sport is almost like your coming out party. It's you're hosting a you're hosting an event that everyone gets to come and see your house. Um, see what you've been up to, and then you kind of curry favor alongside those geopolitical actors. And so, you know, for the Saudi Arabian crown family to utilize sport, I mean, I mean, it is, is smart, um, and we call this term sport washing, because it then glazes over a lot of the human rights atrocities, some of the other atrocities that might be going on in their within their jurisdiction that, you know, externally might be seen and perceived as, okay, well, this is you know, this is a nation that is not on the up and up, but when you are hosting world events, global events like, like you know, the Asian Games, Formula One Grand Prix events, and even the 2023 World Combat Games that are about to happen, you know, these are the types of things that, again, curry favor with other geopolitical actors and sort of demonstrate that, you know, you're willing to not only play ball, but that, yeah, things are actually a lot better than they might actually seem. Does it work though? Because look, the Live Golf Tournament right now, Golf Tour right now is a classic example. They've drawn a bunch of the biggest name players. They're paying them a ton of money. And yet almost every story that you read about this includes something about the human rights violations in Saudi Arabia. I'm not sure that it's done exactly what it's supposed to do, which is if we're supposed to make it so that everything is completely normal, I'm not sure it's done that. But has it done it enough that it made it worthwhile? Well, when you host these type of events, Scott, I mean, there's definitely a halo effect. I mean, even when Sochi, Russia hosted the 2014 Winter Olympic Games, you know, you know many, many people did point to the LGBTQ plus, you know, atrocities and, and the inequities that exist, that still continues to exist for that matter in Russia. But, you know, right now, obviously, there are bigger fish to fry, I would say, at least in terms of the grand scheme of things. You know, people are worried worried about you know whether or not they can survive, uh, you know, in Russia and Ukraine and in, in that part of the the world. But you know, I think when you host multiple events and you continue along that path, again, it's halo after halo or honeymoon after honeymoon. Um, it's when you stop, then everyone goes, well, you know what? Now that the party's over, we can now look over and be like, well, what's going on in there? And so. I do suspect that this is the first of, well, not the first, but one of many sporting properties that Saudi Arabia is going to be continuing to host. And the, I should, I would be remiss, Scott, as, as a, we end the segment here, that the Asian uh, Games are affiliated with the Olympic Games. And so there is a, a long-term prospect here for Saudi Arabia and for the Middle East and subcontinent for that matter, that after, uh, you know, 2032 uh, in Brisbane, you know, where are the Olympics going to go in 2036 for the summer or even 2034, 2038 for the winter? You know, I suspect that spending $500 million, or excuse me, $500 billion, um, on, uh, you know, a winter Olympic project like this sets Saudi Arabia up for potentially hosting a winter Olympic Games in 2030. 2036, most likely. Well, especially after we see in the next month or two the uh, Qatar World Cup, Qatar, Qatar, yep. however you want to say it. Um, same region, 
Um, same climate, you know, if the World Cup goes off without a hitch and Saudi Arabia can actually pull off a winter games, uh, you may be right on to something there that we may see a Summer Olympics in well, really, Saudi really Arabia. Quick 10 seconds, really quick 10 seconds, Scott. And Saudi Arabia is also looking at partnering with Egypt and Greece for a 2030 run at the FIFA Men's World Cup as well. So again, if, if you have the honeymoon and then once the honeymoon's over, you know, you know everything falls, falls to the wayside, that's one thing. But if you keep if you stay on vacation and you keep keep that honeymoon period going, then again, when you're current, trying to curry favor with geopolitical actors in this grand scheme of things, um, sport can definitely be a way in which to do that. Dr. Michael Narain, uh, Associate Professor of Sport Management at Brock University. Thanks as always for the time. Appreciate it. I uh, appreciate it, Scott. Have a great one. We are going to the news. Hour number three of Hamilton today coming up after that. We're going to be chatting about new technology with the city of Hamilton that'll help you presumably find things better. We're going to be chatting about uh, Hockey Canada. Oh, what a mess this thing is. I was going to say becoming, has become. And Loretta Lynn has passed away. Uh, Her place in country music and music in general. We'll get to all that. Stay with us. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have got an election coming up in less than three weeks now. Uh, I I trust, I hope, I pray that you know this. Uh, You should. If you haven't seen the signs out while driving around, hopefully you've heard it on this show, this station the paper, TV, wherever. Hopefully you're aware there's an election. Now, that said, this is an interesting election. This is a difficult election. And one of the reasons why is there are seven incumbents not running. That has opened the field. Now, some people will say that's a great thing, perhaps. But what it's also done is in many wards now, there is nobody who is familiar to people, which means you've got to go and do a little bit of work to find out who you're going to vote for. Well, There is now a way the city has created to try and help that work be a little bit easier. Cyrus Tarani is the Chief Digital Officer and Director of Innovation for the City of Hamilton. He joins us now. Cyrus, thanks for the time today. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. So so people understand if they have a Google Home device or an Alexa device or something, what you've done is created something where for the election they can say, what what was the line they have to say? uh, to, to, to well, they, ask, they didn't ask to, the city of Hamilton. Yeah, they need to, yeah, to enable the um, skill first, either on Alexa, they would say enable the city of Hamilton, and then they can just okay. ask the city of Hamilton, and then they can ask, pose their question to their uh, smart home device on the Alexa. And if they have a Google, they can say, talk to the city of Hamilton, okay. and they'll get some prompts initially. And then there's a whole sequence of things that can be asked from the, the tools themselves. And our, our goal is to really make it easy for residents to access information that's convenient to them by whatever means they want about the upcoming municipal election. So give me an example. When you were developing this, uh, the thought process, what was one of the first things when you were saying, Hey, let's make this, what was kind of what you were thinking somebody might ask? Give me an example. Well, you can ask, where can I vote? And it will tell you your polling uh, location. You can ask what ID do I need to bring? You can ask information about the candidates. It also gives you the option to text, you, for example, a, uh, a Google link to the map for the polling location that you're at, or it can also then follow up with a text if it's enabled to give you the list of the candidates. So it was really just another channel to make it easy for people to 
access information. So whether they're they're getting it through the likes of you know your radio station or they're getting it through the website, we just wanted to introduce as many options as possible and kind of pilot these both the voice skills and we also have a virtual assistant or a, a chat bot that we've launched where you can ask it a series of questions. Likewise, find out where you're polling location is what are the times and dates for the advanced poll dates and a whole bunch of other things and i love all that stuff about the polling station because i mean people are even if it's only on the day of the election i know we've done this before where the heck are we going where's our where's our document all that kind of stuff so it's that's really handy the stuff about the candidate this is really interesting to me because again i love the idea that there's information about the candidates because as i said off the top a lot of these people we don't know a whole heck of a lot about but how do you decide what to include? So when someone asks the question, how do you decide what to include or what not to include in what pops up? Yeah, well, we kind of use past practice around information and in our newly released webpage around the elections. We kind of collated all that information and said, where are some of those themes that we've known from past elections people are trying to ask information about? Or just even some of it was like common sense, like, you know, where can I vote? What are the voting poll times? you know, what ID do I need to bring? And then we built as many of those as we thought of that people would potentially ask. It's never going to be obviously, uh, you know, perfect because of natural language and how people ask things. But we really use sort of the information that we were trying to get across both through the website channel, through these two channels, whether it be the virtual assistant and the bot and the voice query tools to try to answer kind of the same common set of things that most people will ask about an election. Is it up and running right now? It is, yes. I would have tested myself, except my Google Home is not working. So I wasn't able to test. That's the one thing I couldn't do before the show today to check this out. But uh, And are you able to know what kind of response there's been? Is there a way to collate numbers or find out the usership? Yeah, first of all, I'll mention too, is you don't necessarily have to have a smart home device. You can obviously install the Alexa app or the Google Assistant app on your phone, whether it's iOS or, or Android, and sometimes with Android, the Google Assistant is sort of built in. Um, but yeah, we have metrics that we're, we also have a survey that will point people to once they finish their interaction, if they choose to complete it. And we have backend metrics around usage for both the virtual agent uh, and the voice skills that we're going to use to kind of help inform us of how this was adopted and what's successful. And again, it's a pilot for us to kind of learn if this is valuable to people. And we had a good, nice use case around trying to get election information out by many channels. So that's kind of our, our thinking around learning from this experience to inform um, how we might use these tools in the future. Have you had any feedback, not necessarily from users, have any of the candidates reached out and said, you didn't include this, or I want you to put this down, or do they have that option if they wanted to do that? Or do you stay in arm's length so they can't direct what would be found there? Yeah, no, it's it's an arm's length relationship, and we're trying to use factual information that's based on what's also available on Hamilton.ca slash elections. But we do have a process by which, if we're getting feedback of like this isn't working, or there's a problem, we're collecting that through our customer service group, or if we see something um, uh, else come up, we will try to iterate and, and address it because you're never going to get it 100 percent um, the first time. So we have this process in place to try to tweak it as we go if there's things, but uh, definitely we're not influenced by or there's no specific candidate-related platform or information other than the, the name and the position that they're running for. This is, I mean, clearly this is something that makes it very convenient, and, and I don't think anyone would doubt that. It, it, does such a thing exist elsewhere in the city for all other city departments, or is this, when you talk about a pilot, is this something that we could be seeing, hey, if this really works, we can put in everything for where's my rec center open and all those kind of things. Could this expand greatly throughout the city? 
Yeah, currently it's, we, we wanted to have a place to launch this and kind of get a feel for how it works, both from how we you know, develop the tool. So right now it's just for elections, but the thinking is if, if we see success and adoption, and it might be, hey, we got a lot of pickup on the virtual assistant, the chatbot, or one versus the other, we'll use that data to form how we could maybe expand uh, this for broader services. Uh, but like you said, it's a pilot. We're kind of feeling it out for now and based on the success of it, or and we may find out, you know, and being honest, we may find out that adoption is mediocre or, or there's challenges with this type of technology, but it, w- it was a perfect platform to try it for something that was specific, like an election, to inform people, and then we'll go from there. Uh, Cyrus Tarani, Chief Digital Digital Officer and Director of Innovation for the City of Hamilton. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thank you. And thanks, Scott, for, for having me again and, and talking about this so people are aware. Thanks, thanks again. It is, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a neat idea, and, and I would be interested to see down the road after this is done. Now, I mean, I was going to say how many people have used it. I don't know how many people, that's why we're talking about it today. I don't know how many people even know about it. That's the chicken and the egg, right? If you, we don't have, we didn't have a lot of usership. Well, did anyone know? No. Well, then why didn't they not know? Because, you know, it, it was back and forth. But if this thing could catch on, I, I do like the idea, especially if people are sitting in their living room and they've got one of these Alexa devices or Google home or whatever else, or even on their phone, as he said, and you're scrambling around to go, when do I go vote? Where do, where do I go? Vote? It's just, it, it just takes a layer out of looking around. It's a super easy way to do it. Um, I, I, I do think that there is some potential here for something really useful and for other things down the road in the city. When is the city hall open? All these kind of things. I, the easier you can make it for people, I would have to think the more people are going to use these things. We, I include myself in this. We are all getting lazier. <laughs> the easier you can make this, the better. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The NHL season, the hockey season in general, is not all that far away from starting. The OHL season's already started, uh, but we have been talking about hockey in this country for months now and not on the ice hockey. We've been talking about what has been going on with Hockey Canada and this story, not only does it not go away, it seems to get worse, if that's possible. This is a story that started badly and I don't know that there's anyone who's looking at this thinking, yeah, this thing has really gotten a lot better over the course of the summer. I mean, I... I if there's a PR person out there who says, yeah, we've really, this thing has really turned around and it's, it's on a good path now. I, I don't know who that person is. This is just, the whole story is ugly. Ian Kennedy is a writer for the Hockey News. Uh, he's, uh, he writes for Yahoo.com as well, Yahoo.com Sports. He joins us now. Ian, thanks for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, what's a better word or is there a better word than just giant mess for what's happening right now? Oh, there's no good word for this. And, you know, I think the only uh, PR team that is uh, seeing this in a good light is Hockey Canada's own because they seem to continue to report that they are on the right path, they've got everything under control, and and that they're doing all the right things, and the rest of us are just seeing this uh, incorrectly. There, There's really no, no upside to what we're seeing happening uh, today or any other day recently with Hockey Canada. So what we've got in the last, and I've just pulled up the news, the Google News here, just to try and get a full grasp of what's happened today already. Uh, We've got Hockey Canada's board defending, this is coming out an hour ago, Hockey Canada's board defending 2018 sexual assault lawsuit settlement. 
uh, the board defending their leadership, the NHL investigating them and almost wrapping up, a Hockey Canada chair arguing against a purge to eliminate toxic behavior, the Heritage Committee Standing Committee, uh, Canada Heritage Standing Committee investigating on and on and on, a second million dollar fund apparently discovered for sexual assault claims. Like, I, I just, I, I don't know how this story gets worse. And, and even more than that, I, back to what you were just saying, I don't know how the people inside this are not at this point saying we can't win. We can't, we can't win this argument anymore. We've lost this argument. Well, not only are they, they saying that, they, they're saying, you know, they're, they're not just not saying that, they're saying that they are in complete control. And today we saw Michael Brindamore, the former chair of the board of directors and the current chair, Andrew Skinner, uh, testify in front of the committee. But, um, you know, the committee repeatedly showed frustration uh, for not just them not answering questions, outwardly going against uh, directions under oath, um, but a complete lack of transparency. And that's their words. You know, there are so many discrepancies in in the uh, testimonies from the past ones to these current ones. And there's so much blame being thrown from Andrea Skinner towards the media, towards the politicians, towards uh, anybody that, that blame could stick to, except for Hockey Canada itself. Um, and, you know, she rated Scott Smith, the CEO of Hockey Canada, gave him a grade A rating for the job that she considered uh, him to have done throughout this scandal. Um, so there's just such a, such a disconnect between what Hockey Canada feels to be truth and what the actual facts and uh, history are showing. And then, of course, as you mentioned, we saw this new uh, Participants Legacy Trust Fund come out that has over $7 million sitting in it uh, and was designated to, again, pay for um, you know sexual assault claims. It hasn't done so, but it was there and it was created for that purpose. So, okay, let's say that Hockey Canada really, let's say the people there, they got a grade A because they really did do what they were asked to do. And so in that, they may have done a terrific job. I just don't understand how at this point you can't see what the rest of the country is saying and seeing. And so, yes, you may have done exactly what you were asked and you may have done a terrific job at doing exactly what you were asked, although we can leave that for people to interpret but if everyone else is saying, yeah, but you're not doing the right thing, I, again, I just, I, I don't know how you can be blind to this. Well, I mean, there's scholars, there's, uh, there's victim services, there's politicians, there's educators, there's everybody and their brother is saying uh, how horrible this has all gone and, and where it needs to go. Um, but they just are, you know, everyone within Hockey Canada is refusing to relinquish control. Um, and, you know, if they were conducting what they said they would do, that perhaps the conversation might go differently. But we saw them miss their very first date that was set out in the action plan, which was September 15th, to form a a committee to oversee the implementation of the action plan. And the reasoning for that was because the company that they hired to find that committee uh, could not find anyone willing to participate. Um, And that's really in itself speaks uh, volumes that that no one that they think would be qualified to do this is willing to put their name behind it right now, uh, and that's likely because they don't believe in the action plan and they don't believe in the the leadership that's there either. Well, and you you probably don't want your name right now attached in any way to this. I mean, this is uh, there there is a stink involved in this right now that you want no part. Of. I don't mean just you, but n- nobody wants to be having any part of. 
no, I think people are distancing themselves as much as possible, which, you know, I, I don't know what's in this for Andrew Skinner. I don't know what's in this for uh, Scott Smith. But if they think they're going to solve this problem, um, then they're part of the problem. And that's what uh, the standing committee stated today, that, uh, you know, they called out Michael Brindamore, and more specifically, they called out Andrea Skinner, saying that, you know, she was part of the and is part of the toxic culture that's, that's upholding this by claiming ownership over the game, by uh, refusing to listen to other sources and, and experts in the fields that uh, should be consulted in terms of making this move forward in a more positive manner. You know, we, we can talk all day about the people who are on the panel and on the committee and everything else and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, ultimately, I think for a lot of people now, the question, Ian, is, is there any chance that this has a negative effect, not on the the administration? Is there any chance this starts to have a negative effect on the sport itself, that, that, that people begin to mentally align Hockey Canada with hockey, the game? Well, that's what Hockey Canada is trying to do, really. They're trying to claim that they have some kind of ownership over the game and that without Hockey Canada, uh, and that's what happened today. Andrew Skinner stated that if the entire board steps down and if leadership steps down, who's going to run it and what would that do to the, the kids? And, you know, that's a, that's a false statement. Hockey is played in our backyards. It's played on rivers and ponds. It's played on streets. Um, you can rent the ice. Old-timers hockey is not sanctioned by Hockey Canada. Um, you know, the high school hockey largely is not sanctioned by Hockey Canada. There's independent leagues and organizations in Ontario running youth hockey all the way up to junior and senior hockey that is not sanctioned by Hockey Canada. The, probably the biggest example that we can look at is the National Hockey League. The National Hockey League, mm. even the teams in Canada, Toronto, Calgary, all, you know, every team have nothing to do with Hockey Canada. And we idolize those players and those teams so for Hockey Canada to claim that, that there's going to be a problem, you know, it dismisses the, the worldwide game that is played in all these different countries. It dismisses women in sport because, you know, if you can't make the NHL, then, then it, I guess Hockey Canada sees this as being detrimental to everyone else. But, it, um, you know, hockey is a game that we all love that should be available to anyone for the health and mental benefits that we, you know, that we love about the game and just for that enjoyment. But yeah, I don't see the game going anywhere with or without hockey Canada. We're going to continue to play this sport. Ian, I only have 30 seconds, but is anyone actually, see, I don't even understand. Are people calling for hockey Canada to be shut down or simply for a complete change of the leadership? Because if, if she's making the case that, well, you need Hockey Canada in order to keep hockey going in this country, I, you know, I'm not even going to argue that point. I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. We need organization. Isn't it just that they're trying to say, we need Hockey Canada, we just don't need you in Hockey Canada? Well, I think that is the main argument, that we don't need the people that are there. But hockey could exist if provincial governing bodies ran the sport themselves and they can coordinate, uh, you know, interprovincially without, uh, without hockey Canada. But yeah, the main idea is get the people that are in there now out. Let's start fresh with new ideas, uh, new people, and let's build something that is good for everyone. Ian Kennedy, writer for the hockey news. I uh, really appreciate the time, Ian. Thanks for this today. Thanks for having me. Daddy made sure he shoveled coal to make a poor man's dollar. That is Loretta Lynn. You know, the coal miner's daughter. And she, what she's singing about there, that is, in fact, her 
life story she was born where she said in butcher hollow and her father was a coal miner and you know how country was she how how well here's her her siblings junior herman willie j donald ray peggy sue betty ruth and crystal gale yes crystal gale was the other country singer was her sister and, and when you're wondering if you're wondering if you're not a big fan or you haven't followed along achievements she wrote 160 songs, released 60, six zero albums, 10 number one albums, 16 number one singles on the country charts, three Grammy Awards, seven American Music Awards, eight Broadcast Music Incorporated Awards, 13 Academy of Country Music Awards, uh, on and on and on. Entertainment of the Year, first woman to be named that by Country Music Association. Uh, we could do this for hours. Let's bring in Eric Alper here so I don't have to keep doing this. Uh, music publicist, music <laughs> writer. Um, Eric, I, like, I, I am yeah. not... I am not a country music fan. I am especially, I hate to say this, I am especially not a fan of like twangy country music. I hate to put it that way. But I knew Loretta Lynn. You could not, I don't think, listen to music ever and not know this person. No, because she was somebody who literally changed the course of pop country music and who opened up the doors for new generations, not just in country music, but you can draw a line between Loretta Lynn, Sinead O'Connor, um, the cranberries, Bono, like it's a, it's a wonky line. <clears throat> okay. But, okay. Draw, know, draw this line. I am totally intrigued now. Draw this line for me. Because she was a lifetime artist who really defined a genre of music with songs that not only continue to resonate and inspire, but wrote about her life at a time when women were not allowed to do that. Men were completely fine to write songs about drinking and having relationships outside the marriage and murdering somebody, um, which happened a lot in R&B music. Women were not allowed to write about that until Loretta Lynn came along and she paid the price for it. In fact, she had 14 songs banned on country music radio. You can combine all of the, the band songs by men of the 20th century, and she still has more songs. So the line would go Loretta Lynn to Sinead O'Connor tearing up the picture of the Pope, standing up and speaking her truth to somebody like Bono using religion and his background in Ireland. Um, that stuff doesn't happen without country music exploding into the UK and Ireland, um, singing about the songs of their people and of their towns and of their significant others. And for Adeline, um, she was one of the first women. She wasn't the first female country singer, but she certainly was the first to kind of sing about her own life. I, I do wonder if uh, like, okay, so what you just said explains why she is so significant and so relevant. I do wonder though, if she had been plopped into country music today, probably would not have had the same influence that way but I'm guessing probably would have sold like millions more albums than she already did because of the growth of country music now. Yeah. You know, she would be, you know, if you take a look at her duets, the, the, the artist that she wanted to perform and, and release singles with Dolly Parton, Tammy, uh, Tammy Wynette, um, Cheryl Crow, Miranda Lambert. um, uh, Those artists are very much peas in the pod. 
you know, there there are people who who adore her, who grew up with her, who influenced and and were influenced by her. If she came up today, she would just be one in a million female singer songwriters who pour out their heart every single day on Instagram or TikTok. Um, now it you it's almost expected that you sing about your life. Um, you know, especially during COVID, it seemed like every artist that released something released a song about loneliness and isolation and breakups and what it's like to be alone on the planet. And then um, uh, Loretta Lynn was thinking about that 65 years ago um, without even COVID. Cause that's what it was like when you were 15, 16 years old, married with a baby trying to make it into the music career. And, and I'll tell you something that I only learned this afternoon. Uh, what's, what's that old phrase? Well, you know, I've known this, I learned this like today or whatever, <laughs> right. whatever that thing is. Today I um, learned. To, yeah. So I, I, maybe I'm the only one alive. I did not know that she was the sister of Crystal Gale. Now they oh, were like yeah, they're almost yeah. 20 years apart. Uh, I didn't realize that until today that that lineage, I mean, just even within the family. Yeah. You know, it's something that you don't, that tends not to come up in conversations with your with your family, is it? You know, hey, did you know? <laughs> well, um, we don't talk but, about Loretta Lynn often. Right, but, right. No, exactly. even if I did, though, I don't know that that would have been the natural thing you would talk yeah, about. Yeah, I, I think in that, I, I think I first realized about that family when I was really young, only because they were both appearing on Hee Haw all the time and for uh, a lot of canadians that was our first foray into country music it's no wonder why that's true. we all think that country music is full of you know hicks you know in a cornfield you know wearing hats like that with a googly-eyed um, donkey yep and a yeah, red white that blue was guitar. Right. <laughs> playing banjo that was our first you know that was our, our our first mention of it so yeah when loretta and crystal used to perform on the show they used to do a couple of, of family numbers together it is, uh, it's an incredible life story for sure. And yeah. if, you know, a, a coal miner's daughter, you can still find it out there somewhere. I'm sure it's on yeah. Netflix or something Great right movie. now. Probably do, probably do very well in the next few days as people look this one up. Eric Alper, always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is the time that we have today. Uh, Scott Thompson will be back tomorrow, so have no fear. He will be here. Uh, thank you to Will Weber for all the stuff, all the work on the board today, keeping us on the air. Will Erskine for lining everything up and doing all the hard work. Uh, as I say, Scott, back tomorrow. I'll talk to you tomorrow night. Have yourself a great evening. See you soon. And boom goes the dynamite. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.